Today we're going to be in Matthew 23. And what we saw, oh, the teens can be dismissed. And what we saw last Sunday in chapter 22 was basically that the whole Bible boils down to loving God, having a relationship with God, and loving others. And in chapter 23, today, we're going to read that there is a religious system in place at the time of Christ that he had to deal with that neither loved God or loved others. Now, as we go through this, there's going to be an uncanny uh, parallel because when we read some of these words, it's going to really catch our attention as if it was happening today. Even though 2,000 years have passed, we're going to see a lot of the errors, a lot of the mistakes, a lot of the corruption, unfortunately, that religion has become uh, because it's man, because men are a part of it. And unfortunately, if men aren't submitted to the Holy Spirit, aren't submitted to God, these problems will continue to happen. So we're going to look at this, right? We're going to see that, and we have seen, that the statistics show that especially the younger generation has walked away from the things of God, uh, the majority of them, that they're unchurched, so to speak, or unevangelized. However, can we blame them? Because youth look at what happens with their parents or in their church or in the religious system, and they, we think that they're not perceptive, but they're very perceptive. And when they see hypocrisy, they say, gee, I don't want to be a part of this. And they leave, and we can't blame them. And we'll see this situation, this religious system in place that had a lot of hypocrisy in it. And again, can we make parallels today? So if you have found that uh, religion has bothered you, or maybe you came here and somebody had kind of talked you into coming, but you're really not into it. The things that you find deplorable about abuse of religion, as we read this, we'll see, well, Jesus, you're in good company because he felt the same way. And we'll see his very words. Now, every Sunday and, and you know, for you know, just a regular part of my life, I run into people that have been abused in some way maybe financially, maybe uh, socially, maybe in other ways. And I keep hearing this. And I try to, you know, kind of unbrainwash them from that to say this is not a representation of who God is. Now, we may be challenged today. We may have come from a denomination that we have an affinity towards. We may uh, have this, you know, wave the flag for a certain type of church. However, as we read the scripture, we may see that some of our loyalties may be challenged, even Calvary Chapel, okay? All right, there is no perfect denomination, but we have to do the best in representing God as a church and as individual Christians. I believe that ministry should be joyful. That's my personal opinion. Um, I know that when my leaders are in my office, we laugh a lot. We, it's lighthearted. We enjoy serving the Lord. It's so exciting. We get together after church, sometimes like little kids, you know, saying, well, this person said that they haven't been to church in five years and they really liked it and they really liked the word. We get giddy over this stuff. You know what I'm saying? It's joyful ministry. We even have a Facebook uh, account. And if you're on Facebook, look up Calvary Chapel Crossfields. And we go back and forth. We put posts on there just excited about what the Lord's doing, excited about the baptism last week. And I believe that that's what Jesus did. See, when we're excited for the Lord, it becomes contagious. I hear that a lot. It's contagious. 
You know, when, when God's word is, is opened up and we understand his plan for us and his love for us, it's exciting. You know, I, the laughter in my office is only overshadowed by the office next door when the ushers to get, get together, especially when James is involved. I mean, they laugh so loud, you can hear it through the halls. And it, it's awesome. And then we have some really great servants. And I did pray and I said, Lord, thank you for the servants. Our children's ministry teachers are wonderful. And it's not because they're scholars. It's because they have a heart for the children. I know Bill back there somewhere, he's like the baby whisperer. Somebody brings a crying child to the children's ministry, and within a few minutes, I go, I'm like, what happened? What'd you do to the kid, you know? But he just has a way with children, him and his wife. Uh, So we're really blessed by that. But bad religion. Some of what I'm going to read today is going to be a little bit of a downer. Um, You know, Jesus speaks in John chapter 10 of three characters who are in the church. The shepherd, the good shepherd. And every pastor should model Jesus' example of loving the sheep, loving the flock. And then there's a hireling who kind of comes in and maybe he's in ministry for the wrong reasons. Maybe to see what they can get out of ministry. And when the wolf comes, the hireling, you know, takes off because he doesn't want to be bothered. He doesn't want to protect the sheep. And then the wolf. Unfortunately, we read this in the book of Acts. uh, If there's a church, there will be a wolf that tries to come into the church. And that person's only objective is to destroy what God is doing. And sometimes the wolves are in ministry. So let's, let's look at this. Verse 1, Jesus says in Matthew 23. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to the disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. What I love about Jesus was, as we read this, in verse 1, he spoke to the multitudes and his disciples. Now remember, when he gathered a following, there was religious leaders too. Not because they wanted to follow him, because they wanted to scrutinize him. So he was, this was open air preaching. He's speaking to everyone. And down uh, in verse 13, he, I could just see him turn from the multitudes and focus on the religious leaders and says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. So he goes right for them. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't gossip. He doesn't need to. There was sin that was in, 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 the, in the camp, and he needed to deal with it. Yes, you can quote me. Again, what can we learn from this? Well, I've even seen in some Calvary chapels on the East Coast the plasticity of phoniness. People will talk to each other in their face and smile and put them on Facebook, and then they talk about them behind their backs. There's a lot we can learn about what Jesus did in his model of ministry. The scribes and the Pharisees, religious leaders. The Hebrew in in Pharisee, okay, the word is porosh in the Hebrew, and it meant to separate. Back in those days, in this historical account, much history to back this up, there was about several thousand Pharisees. They were basically a legalistic religion, but they were not all bad. Honorable mention was Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, and Gamaliel. Jesus said, though, they sit in Moses' seat. Now, Moses was highly revered. Moses and Abraham were central figures, patriarchs of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. So these guys were in a place where they were in spiritual authority. And Jesus said, basically, they knew enough about the word. They memorized God's word. He said, so if they tell you to do something and it's based on God's word, do it. Because these guys know the word, but don't follow their actions. Why? Because they're hypocrites. They say and do not do. 
It's good for you, but it isn't good for me. Do as I say, not as I do. So this was the prevailing attitude. In the real, and remember, some of you are saying, gee, and I'm going to see your facial expressions during this. You know, nudging each, and I, you know, I've seen it many a times. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Right? So some of you have, have experienced these things. So the first mark of bad religion is these guys were authority junkies. They were on a power trip. They didn't practice what they preached. It was, they were only in it for the power. Now, I will tell you, when I started out about 20 years ago, I was not saved, and um, I was a police officer, and they gave me a badge. They gave me my own car with a light bar and a PA system, and it was the coolest thing. I had a gun on my hip, a gun on my ankle, and a shotgun over my head, and they sent me out. Just go, go find problems, go find trouble. Now, I will tell you that that... In, 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 inherent to that was a sense of authority, was a sense of power. And for a young man, it was unwieldy. It was difficult to, you know, because it, it can change you. It can change you for the worse. It took me a while to understand how to deal with that and still realize that I wasn't invincible and I was a human being. However, when you give that type of authority, make no mistake, if someone's in ministry and the congregation's large enough, a person in ministry has power. They have authority. And you certainly don't want that authority and power in the wrong hands because all it will do is hurt the people in the church, right? So it's worse in religion. Verse 4, for they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. They bind heavy burdens. This is the second mark of bad religion. And you see Jesus go through all these different delineations of these problems what is the heavy burden that they're binding to men's shoulders? Well, in the Middle East, and actually even today in some cultures, you can see a person with packs on them. And they want to be very efficient in moving. You know, they don't have the, the money for uh, caterpillars, you know, front-end loaders and hydraulic equipment. So it's all done by, by human beings. And they'll pack themselves up with these packs and these boxes and whatever it is. And all you see is a, a big package of something and legs underneath walking. So if you go to the Holy Land, you can see this in action. And no doubt Jesus saw this and he made that analogy to them. However, what was the burdens that he was speaking about? Well, it was adding to God's word. Now, many churches have a catechism or a book of order or some type of handbook. But the problem comes when we elevate man's ideas over God's word. That becomes a burden. It's not what God intended. It may look spiritual for many to follow arduous rules and to, to have a discipline to uh, handle all these burdens over and above God's word, but it's not spiritual. A grueling boot camp where they pack up the young soldiers and send them out into the field and they train them may be good for the military, but it doesn't have a place in the church. Be wary of religious dictators. And that's what Jesus' point was here, right? Asceticism. Now, I don't know if you ever heard of this, but asceticism is, and you see different, listen, when we talk about ministers or monks or whatever, it, it goes across the board. Many religions have these. But you'll see monks in different faiths do these things to themselves, deny themselves, deny themselves food. Uh, some of them will whip themselves to try to subdue the flesh when they feel like they're thinking of a sin. It's weird stuff. 
We cannot achieve the spiritual by beating up the physical, by beating our own bodies. It doesn't work. So these religious rules won't get anyone any closer to the kingdom. It's a wrong path. And I believe that in Jesus' time, many gave up spiritually. Did you ever wonder why Jesus would go somewhere and preach and there would be a prostitute or a tax collector or uh, the outcasts of society and immediately they would follow Christ? Do you know why that is? Because the religious leaders put such burdens on them that they just gave up. They were like, they just gave up. They groaned in their spirit. I can't do this. This is impossible. When Jesus came, Jesus was refreshing because he taught them of the love of God. He taught them of removing burdens and not putting burdens on. So immediately, these outcasts followed him, and they became great followers and pillars of the early church. Pretty impressive. Now, I'll tell you what. When I was young, I felt the same way. You know, I was part of a, a, a difficult, strenuous religion, and I just had the idea, I'm going to hell in a handbasket. I mean, the luge is completely greased up for me to just slide right down there. I mean, that's it. So I just quit, and I just went my own way until I found Jesus, until I started reading the Word. And I, again, I felt relieved. So I felt the same way. But let me read to you Matthew 11:28. These are Jesus' words. Now think about the burdens, and let's talk about what Jesus says. And I remember when I studied this passage and gave application, five people came up to receive the Lord because they had never heard that or never seen that before. Verse 28, Jesus says, come to me. Now, you can get an invitation from the president or from the CEO of your company, and it might be impressive. However, God is saying here, come to me. A personal invitation by God himself. Let's start with that. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How many today are laboring? You're heavy laden in your minds, in your jobs, physically, spiritually. You're just burdened. Jesus says, I got, the, I got the oasis here. I've got the source. I've got the living water. I've got something that's going to refresh you. Come to me, right? It gets better. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you realize there's a psychological component to that? Do you realize that God made our minds and it's not just our spirit and body he's concerned about? It's about our, our mental well-being. He says, you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Wow, how refreshing that is. So here's just an example about, again, these people just kind of flooded in. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven uh, is forcefully advancing and the violent take it by force. A very interesting, enigmatic portion of Scripture. Verse 5, let's go back to Matthew 23. He says, But all their works to, they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders, the borders of their garments. Now, we have to understand, we have to go back 2,000 years, understand the culture, so we can get a better understanding of what Jesus is talking about. But the third point that we have about Bad religion is the facade of an appearance and the need for attention in leadership. It's, it's something that leadership does to make them look more spiritual. Now, the phylacteries. Well, Deuteronomy 6, we've read this, the Shema. Um, even today, Jewish people have it memorized. And really, it was an appeal uh, to the person's heart towards their God, a relationship. And he said to bind the word of God on your arms between your frontlets or your eyebrows. And really a picture of 
having the word of God in everything that we do with our hands and everything that we think. However, some took it literally and they made these phylacteries. They were little leather boxes and you can see them today if you, you know, search engine it. They, had, they contained some scripture and they, would, they still have them today. They have them on their arms. They're bound to their arms and they have them right in the center of the square box in their forehead and they wrap it around their head. What Jesus was saying that they would try to outdo each other. Each person would get a different box. Before you know it, some person was walking around with a pizza box on his head with scripture in it. You know, so I don't know if they had pizzas back then. But he also spoke about the garments being broad or long. In Mark's gospel, uh, Jesus goes into more detail about their long robes that he had issue with because of the appearance sake. In Numbers 15, it said, God, you know, God always wanted us to just hide his word in our hearts and apply it to our lives. And he would use different imagery. He also said for them on their, the borders of their garments to have blue tassels, little blue threads just woven through, and the blue would remind you of his word. However, these guys took it to an extreme again, and they made these huge tassels and these huge robes. It was like they were walking around with, a, you know, like a wedding dress has a train. They had these tremendous garments. And the people had the idea, well, they must be more spiritual because the one garment is fancier than the other garment. Again, think about, think about today. In light of what Jesus says, do robes, hats, collars, staffs make a man more holy than the other man? Now let's talk about something a little closer to home in the evangelical community. And we see it, and we shake our heads sometimes. What about these guys who go up behind the pulpit and they have $5,000 watches and $10,000 suits and microphones woven into their suits so, you, so they look flawless? Does that make a man more holy than another minister? I think not. And some of it is, is a show. Now, I today have a shirt with palm trees on it. And that's a technique so that you relax. You think of the palm trees. And <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but for the average believers, when we do things, and listen, we can, we can all say, yeah, Jesus, go get him, rah, rah. But what about the individual believer? It isn't just me that has a responsibility. It's everyone sitting here as a believer. We are an example to the world. So when we do things, do we do things for appearances? Do we do things for a show? We always have to ask ourselves, and I ask myself this, what are my motives behind what I'm doing? Are they righteous or are they self-aggrandizing? This is a trap. You know, look at me, the look at me show. 1 Samuel 15, I love this, says that man looks at the outward appearance, and we just covered this, but God sees the heart. So no matter what kind of show we present, no matter what type of person I present myself to you, God knows who I am. He sees my heart. When I go to prayer and, and I'm praying, you know, I don't even mince words. I don't even beat around the bush about something I shouldn't have done or something that's pressing in my life or a, a forgiveness issue that I'm dealing with. I just give it up to him. He knows my heart. Why try to beat around a bush with a God who knows our hearts? He just wants us to come clean and, and ask for the strength to do better, right? To do better. Verse 6, he says, They love the best, the best places at the feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. So the fourth uh, mark of bad religion is the need for accolades. These religious leaders were celebrities. They were like politicians. They had the best seats at social and religious events. Now, 
There are some that start out in ministry seemingly humble, and then after the accolades, they all of a sudden become very prideful, and they seem like a different person. And you may ask yourself, gee, who's the real person, the one who started out or the person now? Sometimes we come to the conclusion they always had it in them. It just took the right uh, temptation out to bring it out of them. Right? It's kind of sad that when, it, when that happens. I say to those that I'm discipling, beware for the need to feel important. Because mm-hmm. this will feed it. I will say to those who are interested in becoming a pastor, don't expect equal treatment. <laughs> don't expect uh, people to treat you fairly. Don't expect someone to say to you, good job. You see, what drives a pastor, supposedly, should be, is God's mandate. I've called you to this work, go do it. You know, if we start worrying about who says, I didn't like the message, and who says, I did like the message, that becomes now, you might as well work for the Gallup poll, because it becomes a poll situation, and you start to change your messages based on the feedback. No, this is our foundation, right? So if a person has an issue with uh, social uh, issues, I may say to them, you need to get right before you're called, before you're, uh, you can go to this point, because that has to be worked out of you. You only hurt yourself, and you'll hurt everyone else in the body. Verse 7, greetings in the marketplace is to be called rabbi, rabbi, but you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. The fifth point, the love of titles. People get weird when they get titles. People get weird. You know, in the military or the police department, if you, you get a promotion, you get stripes, guys will go like this. Be, why, Sarge? Because of this. That's not the mark of a leadership. That's a joke. You know, in church, do we need titles? Do we need, you know, name tags that say, I'm the this, that, and the other thing, and I flip it over, and I got more titles on the other side? Is that really necessary? People get weird when they get titles. And he, Jesus had a problem with this. First, let's go through some of these titles. Number one, rabbi. Yes, it can mean teacher. The word rabbi is a transliteration from Hebrew to Greek, which means basically it's the same word with the phonetics change based on the new language to make it sound like the same word. In a long story short, it's a Hebrew word, and it means teacher. However, it can also mean master or great one. Now, Jesus is saying at the foot of the cross, we're all equal. We're all equal in this room at the foot of the cross. We all have different functions. We all have different gifts. But as far as importance goes, we're all equal. Don't be called, uh, the second one, father. The Greek word is pater, which uh, indicates a biological father. It's very clear in the scripture. If the person's not your biological father, or it's not your father in heaven, why would you call anyone father? Now, it's not just one religion. There's many. A man, a spiritual man, walks around and wants you to call him father. That's against what Jesus says. I, I, I wouldn't do it. It would, I, I'd be too convicted to do that. What else do we have? Three, teacher. Now, this is not the usual didaskalos in the Greek. That's the basic word for teacher. This means, this word means more of a, a guide or an authority, sort, sort of, I guess, a follow me grasshopper kind of thing, you know? But that's, that's, you know, it's putting the person on a much higher plane. Now, if we look at all the 
cult leaders in the world, religious, political, we see that they like these titles. They have Messiah complexes. Jesus said, many will come in my name. Many will pretend to be the Messiah. And boy, how many can we count in our own lifetime that we've seen? Right? And more are going to come uh, after this. But even in, again, let's, let's talk about what's close to home. We're evangelicals, I guess, and you look at the Greek word, and it just means that we want to tell people about salvation. That's all that that word means. What about what's going on today? You know, a lot of guys are, and we're having a Bible college in, uh, in September just to get people to know their word more. But sometimes all the schooling causes a greater ego. A man's a minister, but he has letters after his name. Don't address me unless you call me doctor. Is that really necessary? I don't know. I don't know. Now, I would just say this. We need not to take ourselves too seriously. Some people are just wound too tight. You know, we need to relax. And, and this, again, it goes back to what I said in the beginning. It should be fun. It should be a joy to serve the Lord. Ministry should be a joy. In some churches, one person may be, and you've probably seen this as well, the pastor, the bishop, the healer, the miracle worker, everyone but the cleaning person, because conveniently, they don't have that gift. You know what I'm saying? So you know where I'm going with that. It builds up a sense of pride. And we may ask ourselves, what is a pastor? Well, if we look into the scripture, the word pastor is synonymous with shepherd, one who identifies with Christ, one who loves and cares for the, the flock spiritually, one who sacrifices for the flock. So when we start thinking about that lofty title and we really know what it means, we realize that it has a different meaning, connotation. What is a deacon or a minister? The Greek word is diakonos, which means a servant. Are the ministers serving or are they just ordering people around? Do you want to be in ministry? Be a servant. That's the first step. Verse 11. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the sixth point is prideful leaders. Now there's just two types of ministry styles. That's it. Any church, any culture, any country, any language, there's only two styles. One style is the servant leadership style. That's Jesus' style. Jesus, he gets up, he girds himself, and you know, the disciples are looking at him, and he starts washing their feet. Now, if you understand the culture back then, you know, open-toed sandals, walking around a lot, the feet got really filthy. And when you would come to someone's house, it was the servant's job to wash your feet. It was a very low, low position. Jesus starts doing it, and I can see Peter getting embarrassed for the Christ, for Jesus, and saying, Lord, don't, what are you doing? You're, you're our guy, you know, you're our Messiah. And Jesus said, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me. That's servant leadership style. Every other style is the me first ministry. That's what it boils down to. We either follow what Jesus says or we do it our own way and it's the me first ministry. Then we start to put us, put ourselves on a pedestal. Jesus basically um, wants to make sure that those in ministry are in ministry for the right reasons, not for an ego need or a power trip or to use people. And I would say this too, um, even for me personally, if somebody comes to me with a problem, I would expect that you're praying first. That you're praying, number one, that God would give me wisdom. If he showed you something, that he would confirm it through me. Because I will fail you. I'm a man. I'm flesh. You know, I will make a mistake. I will hurt some of you. Not meaning to. 
So we always need to go to God first. And if you're looking to seek my counsel, certainly be in prayer about it so that God is part of the equation with the three of us. That's very important. Calvary Chapel teaches uh, through the Bible, and what's really good about the style of preaching that we do is that most Calvary Chapel pastors can't pull a fast one on their flock. So I've taught you so well through the scripture, and again, it's not me, it's the scripture, that if tomorrow or today I would institute, okay, everyone needs to tell me what you do for a living, how much you make, and I'm going to send stuff to your house, and, and I want to take 10%, I'd probably clear this place out. Why? Because you've been taught too well throughout the scripture. You know that that's compulsory and that's not according to the scripture. Isn't that neat? So that's what's really good about going through the Bible. That's where we find our truth. And the question is, when we are looking for leadership, do we want to be exalted by our own hand or do we want to be exalted by the hand of God? I've tried to exalt myself by my own hand and it doesn't work. It's an arm of flesh. So I personally prefer, if God's going to do anything with me, to be lifted up, to be exalted by his hand and his timing when he's ready. Always works better. Verse 13. Again, now he changes his focus. Again, it's still a, a, a public, Jesus spoke in public. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. It starts to get powerful. Now, this word woe isn't like, and this is a generational thing, 2,000 years ago, it's not like, whoa, that's cool, you know? <laughs> this was a Greek word that was ouai, which had a connotation of grievous, sorrowful. This was very sad news. Now, if you think that Jesus hated these guys, he didn't. He loved them. His heart, and, and some of them really came uh, to faith. We know that in Acts 6, a whole bunch of priests uh, from the temple, all of a sudden came to faith. That was Jesus' idea. But he had to break them. He had to convict them of their sinfulness, of their blindness, before they could come and repent and then start to follow the way of salvation. So he speaks out in the open air. Uh, he, you know, he has righteous indignation. Jesus never sinned. The Bible says, be angry and do not sin. So you can be angry about something. However, if we're trying to defend ourselves and protect ourselves versus a righteous cause, we're probably on better ground with a righteous cause. It wasn't personal that Jesus was looking at this. It was they were misrepresenting God. We have to keep going back to that. Their ungodly form of religion was so man-centered that God didn't recognize it any, anymore, so that this had to be dealt with. And the worst part was they were damning others to hell by making them follow their rigorous man-made rules and, and they just forgot about a relationship with God. I've used this illustration before uh, a few times. It's, I think it's a great illustration. Uh, when I, again, for the religious mind to understand this, we, when we're religious, we give to God what we want to give him. And God wants certain things from us like our heart, our relationship with him, attention. But we in religion give him what we want because some leader somewhere across the century said that this is what we do. I liken it to a relationship, say, with me and my wife. If I bring my wife flowers, she may say, Joe, those are very pretty, but the garbage needs to go out, your son needs to be disciplined, and there's a roof leak. So the next day, the next week I come, don't do any of the things she asked me, but I brought her another set of flowers, bigger set. She's like, Joe, they're really pretty, but you're not listening to me. Your son is wild, the house is flooding, and the garbage is stinking. 
Next week, I bring her flowers again. You see, the religious mind wants to give God what it wants to give God. But God is saying, that's not what I'm looking for. And what he's looking for is only found in his word. Now, I want to stop and appeal to those of you that, at this point, might have been burned by religion. Jesus is on your side. However, once you know the truth about the gospel, the onus is on you to follow him or not. Once you hear the truth of his love for you and his way of salvation, then what we have to do is put all those negative experiences behind because they don't represent God and really start to follow him and have a relationship with him the way he desires that relationship. Verse 14. And we're only going to cover two more verses because uh, this is a pretty long chapter and I don't want to rush through it. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. So two major problems in Jesus' day that he points to. Number one, swindling little old ladies out of their savings. Lying to the trusting, frightening them, or even promising them a better seat in heaven. So it could be fear that these guys use, these wolves, or it could be manipulation tactics. And they use both to try to get whatever they're looking for. So if the fear doesn't work, then it's, well, you know, you'll have a better place in heaven if you just sign your house over to the, to the church or the synagogue. You don't think it happens today? Certainly does. Certainly does. You think some of these so-called Christian ministries that are multi-million dollar, approaching billion dollar empires got there all by honest means? You know, a few years back when Congress was uh, investigating some of the top multi-million Christian ministries personally, uh, their personal wealth, some said, oh, Christian persecution. I said, good, investigate them because they're abusing what the government started. They're hoarding money. They're hoarding riches. It's all for themselves. Private jets, $3,000 a night hotel rooms. Is that really necessary? Is that what Jesus had in mind? I don't look at it as Christian persecution. I think the government's doing their job when they do that. I know other men of God that have made a pretty good amount of um, money doing certain things, and then they use that to uh, support their families and don't take anything from the church. I think that's a better way to go. But this is what we have. Two, the second thing, pretentious long prayers. Now, this was something where these religious leaders would go out in a public place and pray. But they would pray, and they would be dramatic, and they would have their raiment, and they would, uh, it was more of a theater than anything else. And Jesus had a problem with it because he knew that they weren't being genuine, these pretentious prayers. I remember years ago being involved in a ministry, and um, there was a guy who came up to me sheepishly, and he said, you know, we would have prayer nights. And he would say, I just, I just can't pray. And I'm like, why? He goes, because everybody sounds so polished in their prayers, and you know, I'd stumble over my words. I said, that's the prayer that God wants to hear. You pray next time. Don't be ashamed to pray. I'm not sure how I feel about scripted prayers. Uh, And I've seen this done where you actually write out a script and you say, uh, dear Lord, we come before you today to, is that really a prayer from the heart or is that something scripted to sound better? Right? So Jesus had a problem with some of this stuff. Last verse, verse 15, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. How many of you have never heard this or seen this side of Jesus before? It's pretty powerful, isn't it? It's pretty heavy stuff. 
So, back then, the, the religious system at, at the time had a, uh, a missionary mindset, missionary overtones. They would go out and they would seek others to become like themselves so they could expand their group and maybe their uh, influence and their power base. And when I look at this and this missionary mindset of trying to get others to be like themselves, I think of the door-to-door cults that come to your house. They're very zealous. They're very dedicated. Unfortunately, they're not looking for the truth. You know, the stuff that they've been poisoned with, they're trying to bring that, and, and maybe some with genuine intentions, but they're bringing the wrong stuff to you, right? It, it's kind of sad. I remember, or when, whenever they come to my house, I like to try to show them material as well. And they say, well, we, we've been told by our organization we're not allowed to take any material. I actually love to read anti-Christian material. I, I like to see what's out there, you know? I'm like, yeah, what's going on? What's the pulse of, of, the, of the world out there? What's their issue? Some of it I might agree with. Some of it I certainly would like to talk to them and convince them otherwise. But if you know what you believe, if you know God has shown you things, if you know God has done miracles in your life, so what? I'll read anybody's material. It just makes me stronger. Verse 15 is an element of religious zealotry here, too. If we're not grounded on the word of God, uh, the best you can hope for is someone who's legalistic, a group. The worst you can get is uh, deadly. And what I mean by that is, let me put on my law enforcement hat here for a minute. Uh, I don't know how many of you know, but there are Al-Qaeda cells in the United States. Shocking? Not really. There's a lot of stuff in this country that probably shouldn't be here. But... Al-Qaeda is taught by their leadership. They'll take young men, they brainwash them into their zealotry, into their form of belief. They send them into the United States. They forbid them to date, to get married, to talk to their neighbors. Why? Because they isolate them in their religious, zealous bubble. And then when the time comes and the word is spoken, go blow up that military institution. They're like robots. They go and do it. You see? That's what Al-Qaeda teaches their people. The jihadists think that they're doing something good. They really believe that if they blow themselves up on a bus and kill innocent people, that they're going to see, when they open their eyes, they're going to see their God, and he's going to have all these wonderful things spread out for them. Again, they've been brainwashed into believing this stuff. Religious zealotry. Zealous is good. More Christians could be more zealous. However, if you're zealous and you're, you're, you're bringing the wrong information, that's a problem. doesn't matter how zealous you are. You need to be bringing the truth. What I love is if you're zealous for the truth of what the Bible says, what do we do? We forgive more. I, I'm on a mission to forgive more. I'm on a mission to love more. And nobody gets hurt. It's a good thing. So, let me just go back to one more scripture. John 9, 41, and ended on this. Jesus, again, speaking to the religious leaders. Well, starting with verse 40. Some of the Pharisees who were with him, with Jesus, heard his words that the blind may see and those that see may become blind. And they said to Jesus, are we blind also? Very interesting what Jesus responds. If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Very convicting, very powerful. They knew the truth. They knew God's word. Jesus led them through God's word piece by piece. And they refused to see because they had a good little thing going. They were well respected in society. It goes back to everything we just said. They were on the top of the food chain in their society because to be poor in those days really was bad. 
You think poverty's bad here? Go to some other countries across the seas. Poverty is, is brutal. And they certainly didn't want to lose that influence and have, maybe have to work for a living. So Jesus said, because you say you see, you think you see the truth about God's word, you, you have the greater condemnation because you should know better. So in closing, we look at this. The question is, do we have, again, our leaders should be held accountable. However, we can all ask ourselves these questions. Do I have a Christian walk or is it a Christian show? Am I interested in the truth or am I just committed to a cause or a denomination? Do we practice bad religion that pushes people away from God or is our example bringing them to the cross? Are we properly representing God because we study his word or just parroting and passing on platitudes that others have spoken? Here's the goal before we close. The truth is every believer in this room is representing God and Jesus says, you don't put a light under a basket. A city on a hill is there so all can see its light. We're to reflect the light of Christ. So as we close, we look at these points and see, do I have any of these? Is there some of these in my church? Are there some of these that I can change? Because I really want to be a good representation of him and bring others to the loving, uh, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord.